Welcome this morning. So uh, we'll continue our study um, through the doctrines of grace. And uh, to begin, let's open with prayer, and then we'll we'll look at today's first point, uh, preceded by a brief review, and that is T, that stands for total depravity. Let, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for this place for which we gather, uh, the church, your bride. The bride of Christ, grateful recipients of your divine grace, we thank you and we praise you and ask for your guidance, Lord, as we work through this doctrine this morning and prepare for worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's kind of like echoing up here. If, you can, if there's anything you can do, but as we're doing this, let's go through this. Um, well, beloved... A doctrinal study such as the doctrines of grace um, is oftentimes in our day um, either adamantly, utterly rejected, um, scoffed at, or at the least um, chafed against uh, with cliched, ignorant phrases, uh, phrases that are common but captive really to 200 years of modern American evangelical Christianity, phrases such as, uh, man has a free will to choose God anytime he wants. Or, whosoever will may come to God. Phrases, none of which are found in the Bible. Faith, uh, for many in our day, is understood not as a gift from God to the sinner, but as a gift to God from the sinner, as man's contribution um, to God for salvation. That's the way it's looked at today, but that's not biblical theology. That is uh, man-made, man-centered philosophy, and no one philosophizes in a vacuum, um, but is influenced by the thoughts and ideals of one's predecessors, those who come before us. So by way of brief review, uh, last time we learned that within Europe at the time of the Reformation, there were two groups, two leading schools of theology. Uh, one was Augustinianism and the other semi-Pelagianism. Um, the Reformers at the time of the Reformation were not re referred to as Calvinists. They were referred to as Augustinians in honor of St. Augustine, who lived uh, during the time of the 4th century, all agreeing that natural man cannot, of his own mythical, quote-unquote, free will, will to have eternal life, but is in desperate need of God to grant spiritual life. That's what the Augustinians believed. That's what the Reformers, who were the Augustinians, believed. Um, that is where, where God's sovereign grace produces saving faith, teaching us that grace and faith are organically related as root and fruit. God's grace is the root of a faith that bears fruit of spiritual life. Amen? Now, semi-Pelagians upheld that people 
retain some natural ability to do, to do some good, including submission of their will that could be added to the work of Jesus Christ, equaling salvation. They taught that we must somehow be able to contribute, that we are able to respond to the gospel without God, having to first deal with the corruption and the deadness of our hearts. Some Pelagians taught that salvation is by grace, but you have to earn that grace by submitting your free will. And they were, of course, influenced by Erasmus, who was a humanist. He was a priest. He lived also during the time of the 16th century. But Erasmus, obviously, he was influenced by Pelagius of the 4th century, who was a contemporary of Augustine. We went over that last week. If you weren't here, you can listen to that online. But uh, they referred to themselves as semi-Pelagians during the time of the Reformation because Pelagius uh, in the 4th century was condemned as a heretic. Um, He denied the effect of original sin. He denied original sin and the effect thereof. So by this time, in the 16th century, they referred to themselves as semi-Pelagians, concluding that man is free to seek God and therefore free to merit the grace of God, freely discovering God by his own human nature and his own reason. Okay, during the time of the Reformation, there was a Dutch theologian by the name of Jacob Herman, known uh, by uh, the Latin form of his last name, Arminius, who leaned toward the humanistic doctrine of Erasmus. Who was influenced by who? Pelagius. Now, Arminius taught that the fall of man was not absolute. The fall of man was not total. Believing that there was enough good in man to stir himself up freely, to free up his will in order to accept Christ unto salvation. And Jacob Arminius's first line of attack against Christian orthodoxy was that man had free will. Now, the followers of Jacob Arminius formulated a teaching, or formulated his teaching, into five novel points, five articles attempting to move halfway back to Catholicism, halfway back to the popes, and those five points are known as the five points of Arminianism. Five points, free will, conditional election, universal atonement, resistible grace, and number five was falling from grace. Now, in response to Jacob Arminius and the remonstrance, those who resisted the teaching of the day, the biblical teaching of the day, they formed a synod, a council, Okay, and that synod convened in Dort, Holland. And they wanted to examine the teachings of Erasmus. It consisted of 84 members from five countries. They met in 154 sessions over the course of seven months. And this was during 1618 and part of 1619. And since human reason is not a standard to conclude the things we conclude, the reformers found the Arminians' five points to be absolutely contrary to Scripture and declared as heretical. 
Now, it wasn't enough to merely refuse these five erroneous points, so five corresponding articles were written in order to oppose the heresy, and they are five points in the form of the acrostic tulip, T-U-L-I-P, five points in contention, and these five points became known to be known as the five points of Calvinism. Calvin was 54 years dead. So why did they call it Calvinism? Quite simply, it was an honor of the French theologian John Calvin, who had a very high and proper view of God and his sovereign rule and reign. So TULIP is also known as the five points of Calvinism, although you cannot condense Calvinism into five points. Amen? Okay, TULIP. T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L stands for limited atonement. I, for irresistible grace. And P, perseverance or the preservation of the saints. So what was labeled as heresy at the Reformation has, over the last 200 years, become the predominant view of modern American evangelical Christianity. Beloved, when we talk about divine sovereign election, is that in the Bible? Yes. Predestination of God's elect, is that in the Bible? Yes. Who were chosen by God before the foundation of the earth, is that in the Bible? Yes. Absolutely. Those he would call to himself at a particular time? Yes. It's all in the Bible. And will they be preserved by God unto the end, unto glory, in that no one will snatch them out of my hand, said Jesus? Yes. Absolutely. This is known as divine sovereign grace, and it's seen throughout Scripture. And as you go through Scripture, you either accept these truths... Or you spend the rest of your life resisting them as you turn the very pages of Scripture. That is, that God by His divine power, beloved, must save us. He must regenerate us. He must call us. He must justify us. He must sanctify us. And therefore, only He can glorify us. We don't play part in that. Once we're saved, do we have the power to obey? Absolutely. Are we called to obey? Absolutely. Are we enabled to obey? Absolutely. Are we, ina- are we able to disobey? Absolutely. But that's because we have the Spirit. There's nothing that we submit to save ourselves. So any, any and all discussions of divine sovereign election must realize that it is the sole monergistic work of God alone. And when we understand these doctrines, it's based on another doctrine that exposes us as totally, absolutely impotent, spiritually speaking. And that is the doctrine of total depravity. You could also refer to this doctrine as absolute inability. Absolute Inability. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.13. I have all these on the screen for you. 1 Corinthians 2.13. The natural person does not accept the Spirit of God, for they are what? Folly to him. He is, notice, not able to understand them. Beloved, regardless of how hard they try in our natural state, we are not able to understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're ridiculous. 
We might understand the concept somewhat, but the reality is we do not understand God, nor do we understand his ways. Meaning, quite simply, the natural man is totally incapable of discerning divine truth. It's, it's ridiculous to him. Until that natural man is supernaturally transformed. Now, before we get into this doctrine of total depravity, um, it's important because there's a great deal of confusion over that term. Um, not only by Arminians, but ignorant Calvinists as well. Um, it's important that we understand what total depravity is not before we understand what it is. Total depravity does not mean that human beings have no sense of right or wrong. Total depravity does not mean that human beings are void of a conscience. Everybody has a conscience. It does not mean that all human beings are altogether devoid of qualities that are beneficial and or pleasing to society. At least it's judged, it's, it's judged by human standards. And total depravity does not mean utter depravity. That is that every sinner is as wicked as he or she possibly could be. See, in the time uh, of uh, the Reformation and in this council that was held um, in Holland, uh, one Bible speaker, uh, teacher, speaks about uh, the way they viewed total depravity, the Arminians. And what they did is they would look at a little old Dutch grandmother with her rosy cheeks and her, and her granny glasses, you know, who baked sugar cookies for the neighborhood children with her little wooden shoes and a windmill turning in the backyard. And the Arminians would look at that woman and point to her and say, no, she's not a Christian, but you can't tell me she's totally depraved. Well, again, total depravity doesn't mean utter depravity. Total depravity means that the corruption of fallen mankind, number one, is universal. That is, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, sin has affected every single human being without exception. That is, the extent, the extension of man's depravity affects every part of man from everywhere. Total depravity, absolute inability. You see, this is how the Apostle Paul nails the coffin shut in the first three chapters of Romans, which we're going to look at, the conclusion of some of his words there, which is to say, extensively, every fiber of man has been affected by sin and therefore, by nature, is opposed to the one true living God. Man is totally depraved, extensively, yet intensively. Man is not as bad as he could be due to the fact that God in his grace restrains evil according to his will and his purpose. Some have compared Hitler to Nero and said, well, at least Hitler didn't kill his own mother, whereas Nero did. So if you want to talk about intensity, or total depravity in, in, with regard to um, its, its intense evil or utter depravity, you can compare those two. In that sense, man's not as bad as he possibly could be. However, all men can do, all fallen men and women can do by nature is sin against God 
That is, that's the extent of man's free will. The extent of man's free will outside of the Spirit of God is all he can do is sin against God. Now, some will say, wait a minute. I know unbelievers who just do some pretty good, heroic, charitable good deeds. Is that true? Absolutely. Absolutely. They do humanly good. But what their human good cannot provide is favor with God. Their human good cannot in any way please God. They are completely unable, outside of having the Spirit of God, to do any spiritual good. They can do absolutely nothing that pleases God. Because as the Bible tells us, in order to please God, everything must be done by faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. And to do it by faith, we do it for His glory. An unregenerate person does not and cannot do anything by faith for the glory of God. Because faith comes from God, according to the revelation of God, by the Holy Spirit of God, for the glory of the name of the Son of God. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 11, You who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. In Luke 6.33, he said, If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Even fallen man can do good to one another. Even fallen man, in their unregenerate condition, know how to give good gifts to their children. In other words, pagan kindness and goodness, like that shown to Paul, for those of you that were here at Sunday school, the shipwreck, Paul's shipwreck, Those pagans did good, but that good cannot, in a salvific sense, in any way satisfy God. And we're talking about salvation here, earning salvation. So while the Bible certainly expresses that reality, you know, we call that common grace... It also declares that all of humanity has has been marred by a deeply rooted perversity. Again, every fiber of man is affected by sin. And that is, beloved, a deviation from God's original design that is so far gone. And it has absolutely no recuperative ability, man that is, within himself to recover. Do we agree with this? Totally depraved. Humanity, in in the perfect sense, is without sin as exemplified through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And, of course, for all redeemed saints when they enter glory. Where we will be not deified, but we will be human in the fullest sense, but not until we're glorified. Because sin is an intruder. Sin is the intruder of humanity, and everyone is a distorted figure of the original. Every single breathing human being is a distorted figure of the original before the fall in the Garden of Evil, uh, Eden, which became evil. So, what was abnormal to original humanity has become profoundly natural of all 
fallen humanity. This is total depravity. When we read Genesis 1, verse 31, what do we read? God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very what? Good, including uh, uh, mankind. Who, they were spiritually alive. It was all good. You get to Genesis 6. <laughs> the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only what? Continually evil. Behold, David said, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Which is to say, in my conception, sin was there. Those little innocent babies. Beautiful, innocent little babies. It does not take long to see the sin nature of a child. Samer, you just had a beautiful son. A child born unto you, my brother, little daughter. I'm sorry, daughter. Oh, precious, beautiful baby, amen? You come talk to us in a few months when you see that. And I was with my grandson yesterday, witnessing firsthand sinful nature. He did not have to be taught how to sin. Amen? They know how. We know how. David says, in conception, sin was there. And although man may think his heart may hold some good, Jeremiah tells us otherwise. Jeremiah 17, heart, uh, 17 9, the heart is deceitful. Above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus said in Matthew 15. A lot of verses for you this morning. Matthew 15, 19. Because I want you to know these. Or at least jot them down. To show you that this myth. Of human free will to accept God anytime you want. Is unbiblical. The human will must be invaded by the Spirit of God that changes your want to. And when the Holy Spirit invades your life and causes you to be born again, your want to changes. Your wanting to run from God changes in wanting to run to Him. But not without the initiating work of God the Holy Spirit. You do not want to. Matthew 15, 19. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Think about your thought life this week, if not just this morning. That's still part of our humanness, fallen humanness that's still there. This flesh that we carry around with us, amen? We're new creatures in Christ, but we still carry this with us till the day we die. But nevertheless, we're redeemed. Prior to being redeemed by the Spirit of God falling upon us, indwelling us, transforming us, we have no power. We are impotent to come to God. Now, some people will say, they look at this verse, and some will say, man's heart and his mind and his affections have indeed been corrupted by sin. Yet, those very same people say, but man's will is not affected by sin, it remains free. Question, question, what does the mind, the heart, and the affections equal? Surprise, the will. To them, everything apparently is dead in in sin except this will, supposedly. It somehow remains free, not so. 
The Bible teaches very clearly that the will is in bondage to sin, totally depraved, therefore absolutely incapable of cooperating with God, let alone freely submitting to God in order to merit his grace unto salvation. Romans 3, verse 4. We've already charged that all, this is the great apostle Paul, both Jews and Greeks are under what? They're under sin. That's a universal accusation. Sinful, fallen people are so entirely controlled by the power of sin that their whole mind, the whole heart, and all of their actions are under its control. That doesn't mean they're out murdering people and robbing banks. But it's contrary to the perfect, holy, righteous will of God. Even if they bake sugar cookies for the kids in their wooden shoes with their rosy cheeks and their granny glasses. Amen? As one preacher put it. See, this is exactly what Romans 3, verses 10 through 17 tell us. Notice this. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. Here's one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear before their eyes. Right? All are under sin. Verse 9. They're all under sin. No one seeks after God, really? Okay, but how often do we hear believers say that their non-Christian friends are are seeking or are searching for God? You've probably said it yourself. Why do we use these cliched sayings when Scripture says just the opposite? Thomas Aquinas observed, quote, People are seeking happiness, peace, relief from guilt, personal fulfillment, and other such benefits. Yet, see, we make the mistake of thinking that because they're seeking what only God can provide, that they are indeed, therefore, seeking God. The Bible says, no, they're not. Human depravity is pervasive. No one escapes it. It's worldwide throughout time. Total depravity, beloved, means that man is beyond all self-help. And why is that? Well, as Paul put it, let me tell you. Man is, is dead spiritually, absolutely dead. Ephesians 2. You, beloved, believers, that's who Paul's writing, believers, he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by what? Nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Man's depravity or or his total inability to deliver himself from the bondage of this sin is grounded in the fact that his human spirit is dead from birth. And what can a dead man do? Nothing. How then can his moral will possibly be free? That's the question. 
if he's dead, how is his moral will free? Moral depravity means that man in his natural condition is absolutely incapable of doing anything or desiring anything that's pleasing to God. Because we're dead to God. And if you're dead to God, you're dead to the truth of God until he brings you to what? Life. Verse 4, but God. But God. You were dead, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. That, beloved, is supernatural, unprovoked by human will, spiritual life given to you by God alone. Period. Verse 8. For by what? Grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. What? The faith to believe. Even that's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Faith to believe is a gift. Colossians 2.13. And you who were what? Dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive. Look what Peter says in 2 Peter 1. Simon Peter, a servant apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have, what, obtained a faith. It doesn't say created or stirred up. It said obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Spiritually dead, brought to spiritual life, granted faith to believe. Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only, what, Believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Notice, again, faith granted to you. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe, but suffer. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are walking into the temple. Remember the crippled man? He's lying there. and Silver and gold I have none, but in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And he gets up and he jumps and he leaps for joy. And then they're inquiring about this, those around them. And they said this, and his name, verse 16, by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is what? Through Jesus has given the man this perfect health. Spiritually dead people cannot of their own mythical free will believe. Faith comes by Christ. Faith comes through Christ to us. That's how this man believed, faith that came through Christ to the sinner. Now, analogous to this divine truth, this deadness, is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, right? Great analogy. He rose from the grave only upon the command of Jesus, who said what? Come forth. Lazarus, come forth. He had no will to resist that command. He had to come forth because Jesus called the dead man to come out of the grave, wrapped up, and his, his head was wrapped, his body was wrapped. What did Jesus say? Untie him, let him loose. So he came out like this. And he came out. He had to. Jesus called him. 
And it was the power of the call that enabled him to call, to, to come, to resurrect from the grave. The day that he called you, I don't care if you were 8 or 80. The day he called you with the, what we know as the effectual call. Now, the general call goes on. You say, I resisted the call for many, many years. Of course you did. But the day it was determined to you to respond, it was determined that you would respond in repentance, you came forth. And who determined that time? You or God? God. And you had to come out of the grave. The gospel commands dead men to rise, to believe, to repent, and to walk. That is, beloved, to do the impossible. But all those called and empowered by God who are given to the Son from the Father, guess what? They will come. What did Jesus say? In John 6, verse 37, all that the Father, what, gives me, they will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Why won't he cast him out? Because they came to him. Why did they come to him? Because the Father gave him to the Son. Same chapter, verse 44. No one, what, can come to me unless the Father who sent me Draws him. No one what? No one can. Unless. Hard teaching? Maybe. For some. But it's no less true. Hard in that people don't want to accept it. Verse 63. Same chapter. It is the spirit who gives life. What is the flesh profit? Nothing. Verse 65, Jesus says, basically, in case you didn't get it the first time, let me tell you again. Same group of people, by the way. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, we either accept this or we reject it. We don't say, yeah, but there's some other verses that talk about free will. No, there's not. You're reading those texts wrong. We're going to get to those over the weeks. When people claim that fallen sinful man has a free will, we have to ask, free from what? Free to what? Is it free from death? Is it free from sin? Is it free from a sinful nature? Free to be sinless if it freely desires to be sinless? No. If an individual decides he wants to fly this afternoon, in his free will, can he walk up the stairs of a 20 or take an elevator freely with his free will up to the rooftop? Can he freely do that in his will? You bet. You bet. He can walk up, ride up, and jump off, but it will soon be discovered that his free will wasn't truly free. His free will, this supposed free will, was subject to a greater law called gravity. That prohibited him from soaring like an eagle. Witness. And it brings him down. The law of sin and death due to original sin 
prohibits anyone from freely, willfully wanting to come to Christ any time they want. And again, the only way they'll will to come to Christ is if the Holy Spirit comes to change your what? Your will, which is subject to your nature, which is what? Dead in transgressions and sins. Again, friends, the Bible never uses the phrase free will. Francis Francis Schaeffer, you know who he is? He said this. Free will has become a slogan that is meaningless. People wave it like a flag. When others see it, they stop and ask, hey, what does this mean? And they answer, we don't know, but we're all for it. (laughs) Now, friends, the Bible does say that we're sinners in need of the Son of God to set us free. With the qualification in John 8, 36. Qualification is if. If the Son sets you free, you are what? You're free indeed. Therefore, true liberty can only come from outside of us. That is from the work of God on the soul. Where as a result, we're not partly dependent upon the grace of God for conversion, but entirely dependent upon the grace of God for conversion. We're either entirely dependent or we're partly dependent. Now, the reformers argued that fallen man still has a will. And he has a will to do exactly as he pleases to do, but he has lost the moral ability of his will. Way back in Adam. And no inner desire to please God within that man can change the man. He's subject to the law of sin and death. So unless God invades his life and changes his will, He's changed to his sinful impulses, which are chained to his sinful nature. Salvation is great, is it not? I mean, it is truly great and truly gracious. Man has no internal recuperative power within himself to free himself from his corruption at all. That's why we pray for those that are lost. You can't convince someone to be saved. You can, you know, talk apologetics and preach the gospel, but if you can talk them being into save, talk them into being saved, they can talk themselves out of it. Amen. That's why we pray, Lord, save my loved one, because only He can do it. But if it's only the elect who get saved, why pray? Because you don't know who's elect, and you don't know who's not. That's what they always try to pin on Spurgeon. You preach the gospel and tell people to come to repentance and believe, but you also preach divine election. That's right, he said, dear sir. If I could pull up every man's shirt tail and there was a red dot on his back that said that he's elect, then I'd only preach to the people with the red dots. But I don't know who's elect, so I preach to all. Amen? I preach here, repent and believe. But only God can make them repent and believe. See, the power's in the command. It's the command, repent, believe. And if the Spirit of God takes His word at that moment and takes it 
into the heart of that man or woman and causes them to be born again. It's the authority of the word and the power of the spirit together that causes them to believe. It's not me. Amen? It's not you. Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Who began the work? Man's mythical free will? Or God, thank you, sovereign God who's omnipotent. So the whole entire human race, dead in trans, trans, trespasses, transgressions, and sins, is outside of Christ. So God comes and he says, repent and believe, love and trust and believe in my son. If men are dead, if men are impotent, by what power do they or can they come? Anything in them? No, nothing. This is what we want to drive home. Because once we stand, understand total depravity, every, that, that beautiful flower, the U-L-I-P of the follow the T, all connects together beautifully. But if you don't understand man's total depravity, you can't understand un un unconditional election, let alone limited atonement. Here's a verse we all love, John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. People say, see, there it is. They believe, so he gave them the right. Well, they don't read verse 13. Who <laughs> were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. Whoever has received and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ was enabled by God to believe it wasn't because of some mythical free will. It was solely God who gives life. It's solely God who grants faith. John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Whose will is free? God's will alone is free. And he comes to set men free. Those he wills to set free shall be free and remain free. Amen? This is why we're thankful for salvation. You never pray. I've said this before, but you never pray, Lord, I, th I, I hope you appreciate <laughs> that out of all my choices in life, I chose you. Out of all these other gods, I chose you, Jesus. I hope you appreciate me. Do you pray like that? No. It's thank you. Romans 9, 15. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends what? Not on human will. What? Just in case. It depends not, the scripture says, on human will or exertion, but on God alone who has mercy. Thank you, Lord is right. For Spurgeon, total depravity is where the message of the gospel begins. See, down in the Bible Belt, a friend of mine is a pastor down there, and he says, man, where I live, it's the buckle of the Bible Belt. He said, the problem down there is you have to convince people who've been going to church all their life that they don't even know Christ. 
They don't even know the gospel. And you have to convince them that they're totally depraved so that you can begin to preach the gospel. So Spurgeon said, this is where the gospel begins, quote, If God requires of the sinner dead in sin that he should take the first step, then he requires just that which renders salvation as impossible under the gospel as it was under the law, since man is as unable to believe as he is to obey, end quote. Man is helpless unless God invades his or her life. So, beloved, since I'm out of time, there's a lot more that could be said about total absolute depravity or or total absolute inability. When we see that man truly is, as Scripture says, totally incapable depraved, that free will, this human free will is mythical, it's unbiblical, and therefore it's absolutely obvious that God alone saves sinners. Once we get this, as I said earlier, everything else under tulip falls into place. When you realize you're totally depraved and incapable, then he must have elected you, as the scripture says, before the foundation of the earth. Conditioned upon what? His grace alone. Not conditional election, which we'll look at next week, which the Arminians teach uh, a a wrong view of the word foreknowledge. They, They say that God foreknows by looking down the chasm of time, and he says, oh, oh, Mark's gonna choose me in 1977. So therefore, based on Mark choosing me, I therefore elect Mark. To foreknown means to place one's love upon. That's what it means to foreknow. Not to look down the chasm of time and see what you're going to do. Because then election is determined by what? Man what? Wills. And not God. Amen? There's total depravity. Lord, we do thank you for your grace. The gift. The gracious gift of salvation. And Lord, for any brothers and sisters here who might be struggling uh, with this, Lord, may you bless them or comfort their hearts. Help us all to see, Lord, uh, the depth of divine truth, uh, eternal security, and the price that was paid to redeem your sheep, those who you call by name, and those you call by name, you, you, you said, Lord Jesus, that they will come. So we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.